When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the podcast that takes a light-hearted look at lesser-known London stories with your own personal blue badge professional tourist guides. She's Fiona. And she's Alex. And this is the Ladies in London podcast. Hello, Pod Squad. How are you doing? It's Alex here. Welcome back to the Ladies Who London podcast. It's just me this week. Fiona's up against it, so I'm uh, flying solo this week. Um, which t- tells me to say hi to you all and hope you're well. Hope you've had a great couple of weeks since the last episode. It's been all go around this neck of the woods. I just, w- when does it quieten down? When? You know that, that thing where you could keep thinking, it'll get you know, relaxed soon. And it never happens. And I don't quite know. Anyway, um, I've been really tired of late. I don't know if it's post chemo or whatever, but it was just the November slump. You know, when the clocks go um, was it back, forward, back, when the clocks change, <laughs> um, th- you know, everything goes a bit wonkaloid. So I'm, um, yeah, I'm feeling very tired at the minute. So I'm doing lots of um, sleeping and catching up on stuff. Um, which if you follow me on social media, you know, I haven't done anything lately. Um, and I'm still sort of trying to get my life back on some kind of even footing after everything that's gone on this year. Um, it probably sounds a little bit different to you this week. And that's because I'm currently in Manchester and I brought with me a whole heap of little microphones to use and none of them want to connect correctly. So that's a fun development for me this week. Uh, so sorry if it sounds a bit odd, and a bit tinny or a bit whatever. Um, but I promise you next week we will be back uh on an even keel because I'll be recording from home. Um, Fiona did also t- tell me to say that she has a really fun story related to last week's episode. Um, and we, we mentioned um, it was the Penicillin Girls and we talked about the the uh, National Portrait Gallery. She's got a really good little anecdote from a group that she was leading there recently. And she wanted me to tell you. And I said, no, wait, wait for next week and do it yourself because uh, I think that'd be really nice. So just... Pop it in your little uh, note box that uh, we've got, you know, Fiona's got a nice little anecdote for you next week related to the Penicillin Girls. I hope you enjoyed it. It's really fun um, uh, researching that one. I really, really enjoyed the stories that I was finding as I was going through. Um, hopefully that that came across. Um, this week we have a returning guest. Uh, this is a chat with the lovely Ollie from Discover Real London. Ollie is a black cab driver and he's also a guide. He goes out guiding in his black cab. And um, I thought, you know what, we haven't done a chat on black cabs and everything around it. And Ollie listens to the podcast. So hi, Ollie. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was lovely to chat to you. And he got so excited about it that he did. We went on for ages. 
episode. It's quite a long one this week, um, which hopefully you'll enjoy. I, I really enjoyed chatting to him. The time went really quickly and it was amazing how much I learned um, all about black calves. Thought I knew everything. Of course I didn't. Um, I know nothing. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so I think we'll just get straight into this week's episode. Enjoy and we'll see you next time. Right, well, this week, listeners, we are super lucky because we have a fantastic guest on. And it's someone, uh, it's a friend of the podcast, someone that you've already met. In fact, a couple of you have met in person um, because we're speaking to Ollie, who is our... I'm going to call you our tame black cab driver. Um, is that is that all right? Can I call you that? Yes, absolutely fine. I've been called much worse things. It's an, an honour to be here. And so if anyone was listening um, a couple of years ago, our Christmas episode, Ollie was kind enough to take us out and about on a little lights tour around London. Uh, we had one of, a couple of our listeners, well, one of our listeners come and, uh, and join us in the cab. And so um, I thought it, it's been a while since we've talked anything black cabby. And I think the only time we've ever really talked about it wasn't on the podcast it was on global tea break i think it was the first or second episode i ever did way back in the middle of lockdown um and i thought it was time we had ollie back on to chat all things black cab so welcome back to the podcast ollie thank you well i've been uh listening intently uh since oh. our last uh our <laughs> last episode so yeah it's, it's great to be here um and yeah hopefully your listeners are going to find it interesting. A bit about the black cabs, a bit about all sorts of stuff, the knowledge, yeah. and some other good stuff. A lot of people, if you've ever um, visited London, of course, you would have seen us everywhere. Hopefully, you had a couple of rides. So, um, yeah, a lot of people have got skin in the game, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those, and, and you know, it's one of those things that's so. I hate to use the word iconic because everyone overuses it, but it is an iconic one of those bits of London that everybody wants to see. You know, along with the red phone boxes and the red post boxes and all of that. The, the the cabs the london well we say black cabs but they not don't all have to be black do they traditionally that's the color but yeah we're commonly referred to as black cabs um official name the hackney carriage mm-hmm. um commonly uh misinterpreted as as um to do in connection with the borough of hackney but um actually named after hackney which couple of variations that, that i've found over the years um sort of means in French, like a, a horse for hire, because obviously we're going mm. back to the, the days of the horse and carriage originally. Um, but another bit of research saying Hackney is actually Flemish for um, a grey dappled horse with Arabic origins that was brought over originally during the Norman Conquest. So, really? yeah, that. a couple of couple of different variations and, and sources. But um, either way, it's not to do with the yeah. borough. That's the. That's what well, a lot of people think. Oh, they must have originated there. But no, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's it's one of those great things where the the word has almost got a little bit lost in in history, and so you have to sort of make a your best guess at it. But yeah, yeah, you can lean it. towards what 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 makes sense. But um, the spelling though has certainly been been corrupted over the years to to be in line with Hackney, the place. Yeah. So um, talking black cabs, so you say that horse and, and carriage originally, um, how far back do we trace the history of black cabs? Well, good question. So we're going to go all the way back to the early 17th century today, actually, okay. um, because the first sort of unregulated carriages that were really um, trading on the streets of London would have been the very casual trade of um, inns and taverns having some sort of very rudimental um, horse and carriage service. But these would have been sort of like the 17th century version of the gig economy, if you like. 
um, people that were moonlighting a little bit with um, wealthy people's carriages and, and horses with their permission. Um, but it wouldn't have been the cheapest asset to, to run a carriage mm. and horses. Um, so, you know, if they can give it to one of the lads or a stable hand to take it out a bit at night, maybe they can get a bit of rent off it. Then obviously it all helps to um, to pay the bills. So uh, around the, the early 17th century, then we find that. But the, the, the time when it becomes a little bit more formalised is in... Um, goes back to 1636 mm-hmm. and that's where we learn about the first ever cab rank Ooh. so you okay. will know alex very well where the church is on uh the strand saint mary the strand yep saint mary in the way yep that's it so <laughs> you may know um and your listeners may know there used to be a maypole there many years ago yeah if anyone doesn't know a what good... a maypole is, um, it's basically a, a big long pole that you, during the May Day celebrations you dance around with ribbons and stuff, which some places still do. Um, I remember doing it as a kid. Did you ever do it? Yeah, you sometimes will see them out in the in the villages if you're out in the yeah. summertime, won't you? Yeah. Um, in rural England, but yeah, I don't don't know if I. There's probably some very suburban in in London now, but it was a good place apparently. The crossover, as we know, the Strand running between uh, the West End and the City of London good place to um to pick up a fare so mm. chap called captain john bailey um so you're probably thinking where's the captain coming he was actually a veteran of sir walter Raleigh's expeditions to the new world oh. that's where he made a bunch of his money and he owned four carriages so oh. sort of first fleet owner if we like and he set up camp um around the main pole area he had four lads that were working for him dressed them quite nicely told them roughly what to charge. And that's where we see the first formal um, introduction to some sort of, of taxi trade in London. Interesting. Um, at that time, it's still, you know, a bit of a grey area, but that's where we see the, the first formal introduction. So, um, yeah, we're going all the way back, really, from there, starting off. Gosh, that, I mean, you don't think of the Black Camps going back that far, do you? That feels like a no, really, I mean, really if, long way. It's, what's 400 years? Yeah, if anyone's, you know, visited London in the last three or four years and you're sitting in the back of an air-conditioned panoramic, you know, <laughs> state-of-the-art taxi, yeah, it might surprise you to, to learn that we're going all the way back there to get us, uh, to kick things off. Yeah, my goodness. Um, so, yeah, there, there was just a, he had four, he owned the fleet, and um, other people, you know, could see, oh, this this is quite a neat idea. So there was some other, other people coming into the market. And then it wasn't until 1654 that Oliver Cromwell actually issues the first ordinance allowing the City of London uh, via the Court of Aldermen to actually start licensing the taxis. But this is only right. in the City of London. Okay. Um, so that's when the first official licensing starts to come in. Um, a few years later, it was actually, there was, there was a cat put on it at first. That was um, taken away and then there was explosion in lots of cabs because the alderman could only regulate it in the city of London. So very lucrative market out in the, uh, out to the West in Westminster and Whitehall around there. Um, And we actually saw for the next 40 or so years, um, licensing of cabs be taken away and reinstated. It was a bit back and forth. Um, But from 1594, there's been uninterrupted licensing of the hackney carriage trade. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's yeah impressive <laughs> yes it is isn't it you, th- you think at the end of the 17th century that makes um the taxis um the licensed taxi trade the oldest licensed transport system in the world which is really yeah, quite surprising isn't it yeah, yeah. only oldest licensed 
transport system. Obviously, there's lots of probably rudimental, you know, transport systems that might yeah. have been knocking around a little bit before that. But yeah, so um, that interruption brings us all the way to present day. Goodness me. And so you you guys are the only ones allowed to just pick up in the streets, just ad hoc. Um, yeah. You know, because obviously everyone knows about Uber and everything, but they have to be pre-booked. You are the only ones who can literally just turn up and be like, yep, I'm free and grab someone in the street. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we we have the sole right to apply for hire on the streets of London. So we can make a direct sale from the window of our cab, pulling over on a street at a cab rank at an airport mm-hmm. station via apps as well. Um, we've got obviously all of them going on. So um, the crucial thing is we can we can make the sale and it's all all um, done on a metered rate. Whereas uh, uh, the second tier license in a mini cab, which is what Uber uh, and other ride sharing apps will fall into, they have to take the um, the sale fryer a third party. So historically, that would have been a small little you know maybe office on the side of a station or outside mm-hmm. a nightclub or somewhere in a town centre. Obviously, as we move into the digital age, then that's that's gone on to um, phones and things like that but it's actually funny that you touch on that Alex because even f- go back to the 17th century there were two tiers of cab drivers then oh, really? there were the more for- formal coachmen that I said so um so John Bailey created at the cab rank where they were formally dressed and they went on to, as, as more of a career and a profession and then there was the am- they were they were known they like to call themselves the ancient coachmen and then we had the more amateur sort of casual um trade that would you know crop up at night and borrow people's coaches and that sort of stuff so even then we can actually see there was a different uh a different between the two ways that people would work so, well uh, talking of competition though mm-hmm. we, it was only really so back in 1694 i mean people would generally walk to where they're going wealthier people would be jumping in some sort of carriage but mm-hmm. it was the waterman and lighterman that were the only real competition of transport in mm-hmm. london that were licensed so they they would predate us sure and so waterman and lightman they're the ones who are taking people and or objects across the river um yeah because would the cows the hackney carriages have been allowed to cross the bridges or not because most of them uh were, yeah as far as i know they, you know? they weren't prohibited at all because for a they long time i mean that the joke goes obviously you can't you can't get a cab south of the river and i'm yeah. sure there was there's some truth <laughs> in that many many years ago but no, we, we enjoy get, taking people all over the place now, that's for sure. Because for the, for the longest time, there was only one bridge in London, which was um, London Bridge. And then the next one doesn't come in until quite late, which is um, Westminster Bridge. And so all of yes. that time, the only way to cross was London Bridge, which, of course, as we know, was very congested. Um, yeah. So realistically, there probably wasn't much ability to cross at the start. And I know that when the bridges were being built, often the Waterman and Lightman would... Uh, launch cases against the bridges being built because it was taking away their trade wasn't it because then of you would course, have been able yeah, to very lobby, easily just... tirelessly lobby in and then yeah in the end come down to downright sabotaging the thing at yeah. night <laughs> yeah. but um yeah so they wouldn't have been really in direct competition a lot of the time to be honest mm. because as i say you think of you know london bridge how crowded that would have been would you really been able to get across it and not yeah. not really much hope to be honest but um but yeah that was the only sort of regulated transport that was knocking around at the time interesting so when the regulation came in what what did they have to do to get their accreditation really because so it was good question so today we we think of people that know a bit about our trade they know the iconic vehicle um, they know we're sort of part of the fabric of London, but a lot of the the, the thing that they're going to talk about is really what we learn and the study and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. At the time, it would have been a monetary 
um, exchange to get a license. Oh, right. Simple um, as pay, however, pay your way for it kind of thing. Yeah, it was it was sort of, I guess, like buying a medallion yeah. um, where a lot, in a lot of cities around the world, um, it would have a price tag on it and you'd mm-hmm. buy that medallion. That would give you the right, right to trade. Um, however, the um, the carriage drivers were actually um, asking King Charles I, actually, a bit about getting some sort of regulation. The Civil War happened. Under Cromwell, as I said, in 1654, he's the one that issued the uh, ordinance, but he would have quite a preference to ex-soldiers from his army ah. getting the medallions and that sort of stuff. Obviously, he wanted to to look after them and uh, and and sort them out a bit and repay them. Um, so there was was a preference certainly for that. Um, but yeah, it was it was a monetary exchange. Gosh, and then we're that. we're gonna get the the actual knowledge. Actually, we're gonna get to that mid nineteenth century. Really, that that started to come in. Um, oh, wow, as early as that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've got fu- uh, we've got some funny stories actually to move on, but um, yeah, so we're at the uh, we're turning into the um, from the seventeenth century, eighteenth century into the eighteenth century. Not not too much really milestones going on. Business as usual. Uh, big explosion in um, in the medallion. So they were they were getting capped here and there. Um, in eighteen fifteen, they were capped at three uh, one thousand three hundred, for example. But it was sort of ebbs and flows, back and forth of capping, mm-hmm. releasing more capping, um, and still, as I said, we didn't have much competition until eighteen twenty seven. A certain George Shilly Beer, which you may have ah. heard heard of, yes, so he's he launches the omnibus. The omnibus. Yes, yeah. so the omnibus um, starts running in eighteen twenty seven. Not not really huge impact on on us i'm sure at the start anyway because it was just a single route from paddington down to the bank of england um but one thing i didn't actually know i know you're you're very good and know so much about common garden Alex. i didn't know that apparently long acre was the the hub of of uh of carriage and coach building back in yeah. the day yeah carriage which carriage is ironic because try and get building. a coach down there now and you wouldn't, know uh, you wouldn't yeah. stand much chance would you it's, it's interesting, yeah, it's carriage building and repairing, crucially. So if anyone knows um, Covent Garden area, there's one big long road called Long Acre that goes all the way along the north side of it. And it's a one-way street. And it kind of makes sense because you'd come in at one end, you'd drop your carriage off at whichever one you were heading for. You could go off and do whatever business you'd come to town on um, while your carriage was being fixed and then you'd go out the other way. So, yeah. Yeah, area. so uh, yeah. it was. Uh, yeah, I, I did uh, find that quite amusing actually when I came <laughs> across that. Um, so yeah, the omnibus starts to come in, and um, at the time the carriages were still pretty much four wheeled, um, quite quite slow. You know, if you've ever seen, I know you would have been outside Buckingham Palace many times when the carriages come out the side mm-hmm. early in the morning. You yep. can see that they're not particularly going very fast trotting along, um, but that changed in eighteen thirty four, and that's where we see the introduction of the hansom cab. Uh-huh. Um, and for if you can imagine um, a, a quite a traditional carriage with, with four wheels um, and it would have had a, a sort of private compartment inside, the hansom cab just had two large wheels, mm-hmm. okay? And the benefit of that was um, it was a lot faster, um, so it could go up to 15 miles an hour. Um, it was very much inspired by the French cabriolets. That's where the cab comes from uh, at the end of it. Handsome. I know what you're thinking, Alex. All us cab drivers are very <laughs> handsome and dashing. I didn't want to uh, say it because it would be unprofessional, but of course, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, actually, contrary to belief, um, it actually comes from Joseph Handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the chap 
that was born up in York um, that actually look, was looking at the uh, the cabs of the day because there was actually some two wheeled cabs already, right. um, but they were they were a bit dangerous to be honest. There was quite a few accidents that sort of stuff. He he looked at it from sort of a, a bit of an engineer's eye and he thought you could make it a lot safer. Um, and he he was a joiner by trade. His his father was a joiner, so he sort of was an apprentice to him. But he actually pivoted towards architecture um, before he uh, he designed what he called the safety cab. Um, he actually ended up. I'm not too familiar with Birmingham, but um, if you know Birmingham Town Hall, I have to built say in the I early 1830s. I don't know if I've ever been to Birmingham. Maybe I've been once. I don't know it at all well. No, I I I mean I, I I've seen some pictures of it, but um, yeah, that was one of the buildings he built. And yeah, he was a talented chap, really smart, but he wasn't a very good businessman. Right. Um, actually, he won the contract for that uh, building. He chi- he pipped Charles Barry to build it. Right. Um, but he reason he got it is because he said that any any overrunning cost we can absorb that, but it didn't work out very well. So he yeah. went bust because of that. And he was looking around, thinking, you know, what next? What now? You know, I've, I'm basically bankrupt. And yeah, he came across the uh, the idea of the carriages, and and he thought there's you could really make these a lot better. So but two big wheels it had on the side, um, lower center of ga- uh, of gravity, mm-hmm. so a lot safer, um, stopped it from turning over more. And um, the driver would stand or sit on the back and they'd overlook the small yeah. cab. And it would be looking out sort of like if you imagine um, like a pram. So it'd have like a, a sort of awning over it, if you like, and the punters would look forward, so would the uh, the driver. Um, and yeah, they became very, very popular. Um, just in the same way that he didn't make much money off the architecture, um, he didn't actually do very well off the cabs. Despite being a huge success, he sold the patent um, oh, for the cab. Never do that. Yeah, to a cabriolet company, which sounds great for um, for ten thousand pounds. It was patent six seven three three, and he sold it to a company called the Safety Cabriolet and Two Wheel Carriage Company. Okay. But they went into financial difficulty and he only got £300 in the <gasps> end, despite it being such a huge success. I was going to say, because what did you say, £10,000? That sounds like a lot. But yeah, if he doesn't get it, then it's not much use, is it? Yeah, it's on paper it seemed like he'd, he'd hit the jackpot, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they, they went into some sort of financial difficulty, never got paid. But the uh, the carriage became very, very popular. Um, so yeah, speeding around um, London. um Again, many, many uh, licenses and badges on the street. There was other sort of cabs as well. Uh, there was one called the Clarence um, that could seat four people. Okay. That was known as the Growler. Apparently. Oh, I've heard of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrible so, name. <laughs> um, a lot, yeah, I know. It's a bit of a suspicious <laughs> name, isn't it? If you say, I'm, I'm going out, I'm a Growler. I'm, I'm looking for, a, I've come out the pub and I'm looking for a Growler. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, they were a lot a lot slower, but um, yeah, they had the added advantage, a bit bigger, uh, and that sort of thing. But were they um, also two wheelers, yeah. were they? Those ones? Uh, no, they were four, they were I believe, four. from what I've seen. So um, yeah, so they they used to um, get about. Um, in eighteen forty three, it started to be regulated by the Metropolitan Police Service. Mm. Um, before that, it had a, a bit of regulation from a few different places, to be honest. Um, the stamp office at one point was okay. regulating it. Um, and then we come to, as I sort of hinted at, the knowledge 
So we know what happened in 1851. What do we think of when we think of that date? Oh, great exhibition. Yes. So great exhibition. Um, If anyone doesn't know, huge um, exhibition in Hyde Park. Uh, Millions of people literally coming from around the country to come and view it. And they're obviously getting you know, here by, by many means, but when they hear they're jumping in these uh, these handsome cabs, these other carriages, mm. they want to get around. And unfortunately, the authorities of the day were inundated with complaints really? about the experience they were having. Yeah. Um, despite it, you know, being, a, being a, a medallion system and a regulated system, there was no, you know, there was no knowledge or tests to test someone's... I mean, I suppose if you're just buying your way in, there's no guarantee of quality there, is there? If you're just saying, you know, here's 20 quid, I'll I'll have my licence, then you give it to anyone. Yeah, exactly. And and from the research that that I know of back then is still a lot of the carriages were owned by proprietors that would maybe own, you know, fleets of them. So it doesn't necessarily mean the chap on the end is is getting a a really Mm. good cut of slice of the action on, on money and that sort of stuff. Um, so that's where the appetite really starts to, to grow um, because of all these complaints. And, you know, the Metropolitan Police think, well, we could probably do something about this. So in 1865, the knowledge of London is born. Right. And that's that... a lot smaller than, than what we learn today. Cause I obviously was just going to say, it much... must be quite different. <laughs> yeah, I think back in the day, it, it was months that it used to take to do. Now it's years to learn the knowledge. Goodness I mean, me. we look around at all the areas that have just been gentrified and, and the growth of, of London and demand for cabs all over the city now has led to yeah, the knowledge being being a lot bigger. Um, so, but, um, talk on. <laughs> yeah, go, no, go ahead, Alex. So tell me about the knowledge in terms of that. I've, the way I've always understood it is that you as trainee cab drivers have to learn every street within a six mile radius of Trafalgar Square. That's correct. Um, and you need to know it off by heart. There's no, you know, there's no kind of, oh, I didn't, I didn't look at those ones. You need to know every little side street and every rat run and every little bit of it, which to me just seems, I mean, I've got a good knowledge of London streets, right? <laughs> but I, I just don't know how you would keep that in your head. Yeah, it's... Um... It's. I think a lot of people that start the knowledge don't know what they're letting themselself in for. Yeah. I think if they knew central, how comprehensive really, it? it would be, if no. You think... I mean, you're talking. So yeah, you're right. Six six miles in each direction, mm. um, as a circumference from Trafalgar Square, is the area that we need to learn today. Um, and to put it into context, that's um, Sydenham, so the Crystal Palace, mm-hmm. up to Alexandra Palace, mm-hmm. and in the west, it's basically. The Chiswick roundabout on the um, A4 going out to Heathrow, and yeah. then it's all the way in the east to City Airport. Yeah, so it's an enormous amount of space. <laughs> yeah, um, in that area, there's approximately twenty five thousand streets, and you can be asked any one of those streets yeah. in an exam. Okay, because ev- every street has the same value. It's a street. You know, it's important to the person that lives there, even if it doesn't look maybe very important to a candidate that's trying to learn the knowledge, but. Um, I would probably lean towards saying we certainly don't actually generally end up learning anymore. But I would say that you probably end up learning between, off the top of my head, maybe twelve to fifteen thousand streets, which is still a ludicrous amount. Yeah, it's huge. And we're not talking about um, learning the name of a road. Uh, we're talking literally about not only learning the name of it, the actual characteristics mm. of it. So, if you've got a central reservation, that would mean 
you can't set that down on the left if you're you know if you're heading west and you want to get over to the other side you can't physically get there you have to go around the block to get to it so you need to know the characteristics of uh, of every street and also what's on the streets mm. that's what makes it a lot harder we're talking about points of interest so a point of interest is essentially anything that a paying customer may wish to go to um so it can be anything in london typically though it's things like places of worship leisure centers hotels galleries cinemas train stations mm. hospitals public squares leisure centers libraries <laughs> etc i mean the list goes on you know every embassy every you know blue institution even, you know down to that if, lots yeah. yeah lots of blue plaques and blue plaques for examiners are a good way of of sending you down all sorts of residential areas yeah um you know making them meaningful because as you know a lot of blue plaques are on residential buildings mm. um so that's a good way of really really sending you all over the place to be honest um i once had a uh, took a black cab coming home here and um i remember saying to the guy you know i said oh i'm going down towards <laughs> you know um sorry keys where i live and uh, and he said, oh, where exactly? I was like, oh, just, just get to the station. I'll direct you from there. And when we got to the end of my road, he was like, oh, you should have said this road. I know this one. <laughs> and I'm like this tiny <laughs> little muse. It's like a it's a sort of a, a dead end with a, with a gate on it. He's like, oh, you could have said that. And I was like, oh, well, I wouldn't have thought you'd known it. But he did. It was unbelievable. How funny. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's funny, the, the stuff you remember. Um, and even when you're out and about on the outskirts, maybe if you live north, you don't often go, you know, down down south to Norwood or something. When you're there, you still remember it because yeah. you've ridden them streets so many times. And for people that are listening, um, that are, are thinking, you know, how is that even possible to learn all this sort of stuff? It's split into 320 routes. These, this is the way that the public carriage office um, that regulated the uh, the industry when I learned. Now it's it's under the umbrella of Transport for London. Mm. Uh, still the same process. But um, they broke it down, same as they do today, into 320 routes. Those routes are about a mile and a half long, mm-hmm. I'd say. And they're laid out to go to every single part of the city. Right. So by doing those routes, and they will literally just give you a, a list that says this street to this street. That's one route. You decipher the legal way, the straightest legal way to travel in between, which you do that on a scooter. Mm-hmm. Nearly everyone does it on a motorbike. Um, it's up to you how you study London. There, there is people that have done it on a bicycle. There's people that cool. have driven around at night doing it in cars, but that's obviously very it's very dangerous. If you're looking for a blue pack, yeah. Alex, as you can imagine, and you're in a car and it's raining and it's dark, no, and no, you no. you know it's very, very not a good idea. So um, <laughs> nearly everyone does it on a scooter. It's fast. It's cheap. Um, you know, you get wet and freezing cold, but you've just got to do what you've got to and do you to can get kind the, of stop the where job you need done to stop and, and so yeah if anyone ever sees around london people um on mopeds or motorbikes little motorcycles with a kind of big plastic screen in front of them and a map on it often peering around at stuff chances are that is a trainee cab driver yeah yeah you're seeing we modify our scooters to have a little clipboard per, normally perspex clipboard on the front and yeah n- now actually you see see um the knowledge students with ipads Really? Um, you know, instead of a, a, you know, instead of a printed out bit of paper, they just take the iPad out, put it in a, in a yeah. waterproof cover. Still, a lot of old school people with printed maps as well. But um, yeah, if you, you're seeing someone that's looking lost or frustrated, that's probably someone <laughs> trying to become a cab driver <laughs> or a tour guide, not knowing where their group's gone. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, so that's how you go about doing it. Um, 
one of the great things about the knowledge is it's a trade that's that's open to anyone. Mm. I mean, this isn't some sort of, you know, you go to a lot of cities, I mentioned about the price of medallions, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds sometimes in some of the big cities around the world. But this is a trade that is actually open to anyone that is willing to work hard uh, and apply themselves. Um, you know, you can buy an old scooter for 500 quid that's relatively okay, mm. four or five quid, in uh in petrol is going to get you around a day or and a half probably um so barrier to entry monetary wise it's very very cheap mm. um if you need to have um i wouldn't i'm not sure if you need to have a completely clean criminal record you know people do do things when are a bit younger little misdemeanors and stuff it's not i don't think it's that strict that you're not allowed anything but um certainly you have to be of good character mm-hmm. and merit you need to have um a fairly you know clean bill of health if you like you've got to be driving around potentially the uh, the public um and obviously your driving license if you if you like yeah. drink driving and things like that you know you're not going to get accepted yeah that's the um, minimum requirement but, yeah a valid driving license. yeah but it, it, it's great because it, it isn't it isn't any sort of racket it's open to anyone that's going to work hard which is great and yeah. it really out of everyone that starts i mean I'm not quite sure what it is now it used to be around 28 percent of people that started would get their medallion wow that few um, gosh it yeah is so it's hard, isn't it? How how long is the average that it takes? I know it can it can vary massively between candidates, but how long does it normally take? Yeah, uh, you they still describe it um, TFL as taking between three and four years. Yeah. So um, yeah, it took me three years and ten months. I'd probably say that's roughly average, or yeah. or maybe a little bit longer. And how many exams um, did you have to do? It's it was very difficult to score well it's done on a point system so right. a b c and d and it's the amount of points you need to get uh or when i was doing it i believe it's still the same now you need to get 12 points um on three stages and generally for a pass you should generally get three or four points okay. um so it would take you sort of three or four um passes to get your medallion mm-hmm. i think uh sorry to get to get a pass at that stage and eventually you know reach the next the next level and they become as you'd probably guess as you go on the 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 exams become more difficult mm. um, longer routes, more obscure points, that sort of stuff. Um, but they space them out. So when you've done all these 320 routes, um, you apply to the carriage office or TFL now to, um, to sit your exams, then um, they'll invite you in and um, they won't let you take those exams any sooner than two months apart because there's so much right. more to learn. Yeah. So it's, it feels intense. These exams are only, they're all oral appearances. So they're speaking in front of an examiner, mm-hmm. just like you and I in a way, if we were face-to-face, you they would ask you, right, I'm outside here, take me to here. You'd need to describe every single route along the way. You're not allowed any sort of writing materials. You're not allowed to look at any maps. Um, you know, you've got no computers or anything like that. It's literally you and the examiner sitting at a desk and, you know, he can tell very quickly if you've been working hard and you've, you know, been applying yourself. Yeah um so yeah three or four routes um sometimes five possibly they'll they'll award you a mark you know uh be a, a certain a number of points and generally you get seven chances um to get out of that stage so if you're getting three points for every pass which is pretty average um then you need to pass four of those exams you can obviously imagine it's very very uh, a lot a lot of pressure if you've got three passes three fouls you've got one more shot yeah to get through Otherwise, you're back to the start. And if you're at that first stage, we call 56s in this trade. It's actually 56 days, but normally it ends up being around two months. Mm-hmm. Um, then, yeah, it's a lot of pressure because you could you could be flushing sort of a year or so down the toilet yeah. 
um, if you're that sort of thing. After that, you go down to the next stage. You appear every 28 days or roughly every month. Again, four passes to get out of that stage. And the final stage, you're up every three weeks. So it starts to become more intense as you go on. Um, After that, you need to um, learn the suburbs. Not in detail, but the routes out to towns around Mm -hmm. um, London and airports and things like that. Uh, You need to learn where all the terminals are at Heathrow and stuff. And then you have to take an advanced, or you did have to take an advanced driving test in a cab. I'm not quite sure if they still run that now under TfL, but um, either way, you know that's that's a small part of the the whole pie. So wow. after all of that, you can uh, finally get your badge and go out <laughs> and hopefully earn some money. Goodness me, that I mean, it's so intense. And I, you know, do you, do you feel like you still have all of that knowledge? Or do you feel like a bit of it is kind of because I mean, talk, talking to someone who's done a lot of study for the blue badge, the stuff we learned, but a, you know, a lot of the extraneous stuff I've now forgotten. But it's fine because I, those bits I, I was never going to use. But you may well use those random little bits. So, how much of that yeah. do you reckon you've retained on a? Good question. So it's like you said actually about your cab driver the other day. If someone says some uh, an area that I that. I haven't been to for a long time because there just isn't a lot of demand that takes you out there mm. for whatever reason. Um, they might say, we want to go to Nelson road or church this or whatever. And you might have to double check them. Is that off this road yeah. or and they, or they'll say it's off the high road. I'll tell you when we get there, when you get there, you, your vision, you, you know where you are because yeah. you've been there several times, but yeah, I think out around the outside, yeah, you do get rusty on, on the road names. If I'm going to be honest, um, but yeah, when you're there, you never you never generally get no. lost and things like that. It's amazing, and that's how you keep you you apply for your license every three years once you've got it. That's just a formality. Oh, really? You know, okay. same as a driving license, you apply reapply for that every ten years. Yeah. Same as a passport. As long as you've been working at some point within them three years, mm-hmm. then you'll and you and you haven't done anything wrong because the license is very difficult to get, but it's very easy to lose. Right. You know, if you get into an altercation with a customer and and or you get you know, too many points on your license, lots of ways how you can lose your badge. Mm. Um, but as long as you keep your nose clean, you can prove you've worked at least one day in them three years, then um, they'll, they'll issue the license straight away again. Gosh, it's, it, that's such an undertaking. You must have a brain the size of a planet. I don't think I could retain all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something interesting a little bit later on when we get to the, uh, a bit more history first about, yeah, taxi drivers trains in the hippocampus. That's a little, little teaser oh, all right, to keep okay. any listeners tuned in, if they're, <laughs> tuned in if they're thinking of getting a coffee. Um, so yeah, that's where all the knowledge comes from. 1851, really the great exhibition. So it comes in a very rudimental form at that point, mm-hmm. but, as we just touched on, London's grown and grown and grown. So they've made, you know, the the area more expansive because taxi drivers need to know yeah. all these areas because there's a lot of demand and people want to go back to their house. Yeah. Um, so cab drivers are out there. They're working hard. They need to stop and have a rest, mm. okay? Um, and that is where if you've ever wandered around the streets of London and seen these little green huts that maybe look like a cross yeah. between... Um, you know, maybe a, a little cricket pavilion and a shed. Yeah. <laughs> um, the taxi driver's huts, they're a staple on the streets of uh, London. There's still some of them are trading today. Um, that's where they start to come in. Now, I love these things. There's only, is it 13 of them left? Unless That's correct. Unless any more have yeah. gone in, in recent years. Um, and I always refer to them as the most exclusive restaurants in London. Yeah, I call them the VIP lounge. <laughs> <laughs> because you have to be a bona fide um, cab driver to access it. 
As a general rule, yes. And it's an overwhelming general rule. It's very, you won't wander in one and find, you know, a couple of posties, having a couple and things like that. Right. It, it is very much exclusive for cab drivers. But um, they're really they, small, yeah, aren't been... they? They're so, they're so, you wouldn't think that, I don't know, you can't fit. I mean, how many people can you fit in there? A handful, really. Uh, a squeeze, I'd say, probably about 10 or 11. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's cozy inside. We call it uh, it's quite intimate in there, in, yeah. in a in a clean way. <laughs> um, but yeah, they are they're not you know they 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 are small. Um, and the reason they're that size actually is because when they were started to be put on the public highway, at one point, um, there were just over sixty of them on the streets of the mm. city. Unfortunately, a lot of them got got destroyed uh, during the blitz. Yeah. Um, And obviously, as we talked about London evolving, when there's suddenly restaurants that are all open till, you know, midnight and all sorts of stuff and even 24 hour coffee bars and things, they're they're taking away some of the custom of Mm. of these huts where they, the drivers would frequent them all the time in the start because you got, you know, a free place that you could park up. And we're talking about carriages. Remember back in the day, this is 1875 when they started to come onto the streets of London. Um, so if you look at anyone that's around London and sees these green huts, maybe you walk past one on the way to work, have a look around the outside. There's a black railing. That is to tether horses up to mm. originally. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they're cozy inside. Um, where, where they came around, actually, is a chap called George Armstrong. Um, so he was the editor of a paper called The Globe. He lived up in St. John's Wood and he sent, I think it was, I don't think it was him, I think it was one of his staff out and about trying to get a cab on a really cold winter's day and he could find horses and carriages tethered up but no drivers uh-huh. and they were in one of the local places having a having a drink as you do <laughs> when you're escaping the uh, the elements. Yep. And as I, as I touched on the handsome cabs, for example, the driver would be exposed. They'd be standing on mm. or, or sitting down on the back of, of a cab. They're out in the elements. So... If it was really cold or really wet, where are they going to take shelter? They're going to be in pubs and all sorts yeah, of places. Of so um, it's fi- hard to, if it's raining or really cold, it's hard to uh, apparently, allegedly, find a sober cab driver. I'm right, not yeah, so yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Us cab drivers, we don't, we don't normally drink, you to don't be normally fair, drink but, no. uh, but allegedly it was hard to find them. So um, he's George sort of had the neat idea of... Um, of you know building some shelter and things like that and, and making it a bit more efficient so people could actually find a carriage driver if they needed one and also you know it's nice that these that these guys could have somewhere to stay so it was him in collaboration with the seventh earl of shaftesbury oh. so anthony ashley cooper and uh, oh, the tory mp big philanthropist i'm sure you you've looked over a lot of the stuff he's done in history i know he's he's done quite a lot of reform and of all sorts of things mm. Um, yeah, he he obviously made a big difference to getting behind the weight of that and getting this done. Um, and yeah, 1875, the first one was up in St. John's Wood near George's house. So I suppose he wanted to make sure he was he yeah. was looked after first. <laughs> Gets first dibs, um, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but yeah, back to the, the size of it. I don't know if I got to the, the end of what I was saying. The dimensions of it are of a horse and carriage. Yeah. That's why they're a small in size. Okay. Yeah. Basically, because um, they didn't want to take up valuable space that the horses and carriages needed, really. Um, exactly. And you think if you've got 10 guys in there, you'd have 10 horse and carriages yeah. potentially tethered around it or, or to it. So, um, you don't, you know, if you if you did have space for 30, imagine the sort of room you'd need for all the horses and carriages <laughs> and the nuisance that could create. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're intimate um, spaces, but, yeah, we, we very much enjoy them. And, and also, for the public, you guys even though you're not allowed in them, you can still buy from the takeout mm. window. 
Best post All cup of, these, of tea in London, that one. They are an absolute bargain compared to some of the uh, the frothy, you know, oatmeal teas that you yeah. get just a stone's throw away from them. They are an absolute bargain. Don't expect all the ice stuff that no. you can get in a lot of the uh, nice big cup of thick places. builder's tea. That's what you'll get, and you'll uh, you'll pay not much for it. That's it. And actually, funny you mentioned builders. You go to anywhere near one at ten thirty in the morning, there'll be a queue of high vis jackets and, and really? hats because yeah, they're builders. They sniff out a good place to get a bacon and egg sandwich, amazing, um, for cheap. But um, yeah, so always feel free to um, to lean in the window, grab a cup of tea or, or a sandwich or a cake or something because you're supporting yeah little independent business if you do go near one. Do they tend to open um, more through the night than in the day? Because often I, I see them closed, and I don't know if they tend to sort of operate a bit more in the hours where other establishments might not be open. Good question. So they, they're leased now as independent little businesses. I think those people have got a bit of a, you know, a say on when they want to work and things like that. Um, the one in, if you've ever been up and done uh, any tours around little Venice, the one in Warwick Avenue, mm-hmm. um, that actually used to be a night shelter. And when I say night, I don't know if it used to go into the really early hours, but it was certainly open into the evening. It used to be apparently quite lively from the people I've I've heard up there. Um, you're not allowed, even though it was maybe lively with lots of banter and stuff like that, you're not allowed to drink in them. No. You're not allowed to gamble in them. Um, actually, political um, de- conversation debate was actually outlawed in some form at some point, whether that's adhered to now. It's probably still in a bylaw because a lot of these things do stay in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't believe that that's enforced really. When I go in there, you know, everyone's really friendly. And it's nice because a cab driver... Um, you know, today it can be a bit of a lonely job. You're meeting people all the time, but you don't have, if you come from somewhere that you might have worked as a team or in an office or, you know, something like that, it, you can feel, you know, a little bit isolated. So it's nice that you can wander in these and have a, have a chat with a lot of people that have, are relevant to, to you and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, long, long may they continue. But yeah, 13 that still, still, um, still trade today. So yeah, hopefully they'll still be around. And I'm, work- um, I'm working the, on getting you to, to take me in one because I really want to go inside. <laughs> I'm working on that. Well, we, we will get we'll it do done. It. I promise you. I've actually tapped up uh, one of them. I won't say where oh. she said, yeah, as long as it's near the end of the day. And when I said that, um, the, uh, you know, generally the public aren't allowed in there, that's gen, that's generally true. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a really quick little tale about Lionel Richie. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll send you over some pictures of him in one. I've heard a couple of different variations of the story, but apparently he was, he went to, he come over to do some photography and he had a driver and they went into a builder's cafe and he loved it because it was unlike a lot of the posh places he's going, you know, yeah. with all the, you know, all the, all the real locals. Um, and he, he asked about the green huts. He said, what are they? And when he found out they were full of cab drivers, he was obsessed in getting in one. <laughs> um, and the story goes, whether it's absolutely true or not is, um, is eventually they let him in, but they said, you have to make the tea. And you have to remember, this is really? like, you know, Rihanna going in one now. This is at the height <laughs> of his fame. Um, and whether that's exactly true or not, we're not sure. But I've got pictures of him actually in the kitchen, the cafeteria bit of um, of the thing with a kettle in his hand, pouring Amazing. tea. So I think there's probably a lot of substance behind that. Um, Paul the Weller, they call him Lionel known- Rich Tea. Yeah, well, you could say, is it tea you're looking for? Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> Couldn't resist shoehorning that one in, hey? Uh, yeah, so you can feel sorry for my punters now, the bad jokes. That's just a little <laughs> sneak preview of how bad they get. But, um, yeah, um, 
yeah, Paul Weller, he's known to get him in a, in a oh, little wow. bit here and there. Um, I don't know how much, but I've, I have certainly seen a photo of him. Um, actually, I'll tell you um, who else loved, I, I think she must have been allowed in him, because I've read the interview in a, in a publication called Politico. Um, the American ambassador's wife, I, I'm not sure exactly what year, but it was in recent times in the last sort of 10 years or so. When she was asked in in an article in that magazine, completely unrelated to the taxi trade, what she loves about living in Winfield House mm. and in London, she said that she loves to speak to the cab drivers um, about, you know, London, that sort of stuff. And she loves to have a cuppa in these places. So they must have let her in. I guess really? it maybe it's up in St. John's, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm giving you all the trade secrets here. But yeah. yeah, she was a big, big fan of them as well. So um, if you want to know what's going on in London, yeah, ask a cab driver. That's certainly what Absolutely. she was finding. Um, so yeah, get in them. They're really good. So 1875, they're on the streets, thanks to uh, yeah the Earl of Shaftesbury and uh, good old George Armstrong. Uh, 1903, actually before I get to 1903, when we look at around now, a lot of the cabs are electric. So mm. we're really... You know, that all that heritage that we're talking about is in the 21st century now. But you'll forgive um, your ears. You haven't misheard this. The first electric cab um, that was ever on the streets of London was actually all the way back in 1897. What? Can you believe that? How is that possible? So it was a cab called the Bercy. And it wasn't very successful. Okay. <laughs> it was on the street. Yeah, it was on the streets of London um for just two years okay, okay because of the expense of repairing it when you look at uh pictures of it it actually looks like a freestanding horse carriage with four oh. wheels it, it looks like it should be t- pulled by a horse exactly the same but no it actually had a battery um oh my goodness there was a lot of wear and tear as you can imagine going over cobbled streets and all that sort of stuff so mm-hmm. the repairs were huge and they got up to 77 taxis but by 1899 they pulled the plug excuse the pun really on the cab and that was the end of it but Why? yeah the electric cabs actually graced just it was unviable economically Gosh. too much to repair they were too, you know the batteries and stuff were too expensive the range wasn't big enough yeah. um Wow. <laughs> something that will make you laugh the growler that we learned about yeah. earlier so in contrast these were called the hummingbird which oh, is a really? lot nice to say because they were, <laughs> they just used to buzz around and were very very quiet oh, nice. um but yeah so for two years at the end of the 19th century we did actually have electric um, cabs on the streets very briefly um but 1903 we see the first petrol cab introduced um and it was actually a french built cab um and lots of other competitions started to enter the market um, 1906, the 20-foot turning circle was required. So if yeah. you've ever been in the cab and you've jumped in, you've said, Waterloo, please, mate, and they've spun around, as we say, turn on a sixpence, um, we can turn in 25 um, feet, and that's still a requirement today. Yeah. I kid you not, You know, if you've got a sparkling cab and everything's done and all your certificates, you get an annual inspection, by the way, on the taxis now. I so they, they put the cab through a lot of their paces as well. Um, but if your cab won't turn in 25 foot it fails you have to go and get you know the steering box and stuff you know modified mm. it and bring it back and tightened up or whatever but they still found it now yeah it's, it's always, they, um... always amazing how yeah because they were built specifically for london streets weren't they to in order to deal with these you know narrow streets and not clog everything up every time they need to turn around it's i've, I've always loved it you just whip it's, it's unbelievable yeah yeah, no, it's, a, it's very easy to park if you go to a supermarket yeah. in your cab. Very difficult <laughs> if you've got an SUV, believe me. I've made that mistake as well in other people's cars. Oh, no. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you swing in like you know you're used to swooping in, and yeah, it doesn't really work too much if you've got yeah something that's not a cab. Um, the taxi meters that we know today um, were introduced in 1907. I say today they're not exactly the same. Yeah. Um, did you know the cost of a cab when you get in is still called the flagfall? Oh, really? The price. So yeah, today it's three eighty. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first meters used to have a little mechanical, like sort of plastic flag yeah. that used to come out the side. There's available for hire. When you start the meter, it disappears. It goes inwards. So that was the flag for it's still called that. The price when you get in a cab I now. Didn't know that. There's um, lots today. <laughs> there, there's yeah, lot, lots of history. I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, to go. We we're picking the best stuff. Hopefully, <laughs> people agree. Um, so we fast forward then to 1940. We all know what's going on then. Mm. We've got wartime, um, London, the, uh, the bombs dropping from the Luftwaffe. And actually th- there's quite a lot of similarities that I've, I've brought into it, whether it be the casual trade and the regulated trade, um, you know, the electric cab, you know, things go around in full circle, but cab drivers of today uh, will know how bad COVID was. And you, mm. and the same as for, for the industry, you know, the blue badge industry, everything just stopped. Yeah. Um, and, Go back to World War Two, that was the same for the cab trade. Yeah. No work. Not not just is there not people doing business and going places, but your streets are blown up. You know, yeah. buildings everywhere. Sure. You literally can't get around. A lot of people don't know that um, during uh, World War Two, wartime Britain, around three thousand taxis were fitted with trailer pumps, ladders on the top, and they were part of the auxiliary fire service. Really. Yep, that were helping extinguish fires wow. um, day in, day out on the streets of London. Goodness me, I didn't know I So did. yeah, I'll, I'll get a picture and send it over to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, as you can imagine, um, you know, these drivers, gone was the taxi, they were actually firemen, basically. Yeah. Um, and they were, um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them were killed and injured during mm. that period. Imagine. Very dangerous, as you can imagine, being out and about and, and putting out the burning buildings. Um, they were classed as A3. Um, that was their grade, which is a reserved occupation. Mm-hmm. And they had to surrender their cab licenses when they when they took up the, uh, the fire posts. Really? Um, yeah, and it's never really been documented, unfortunately. But, you know, maybe one day we'll um, we'll get a bit more of a light shot on that. But yeah, they're very brave and mm. very difficult time, I'm sure, for them, for their families trying to earn money. I'm not sure what the, the sort of compensation or pay was, but um, yeah, that was wartime London. So around 3,000 of them retrofitted like that. Gosh. Um, 1948, the last license was um, issued for a horse-drawn handsome cab. That late? Or, oh my um, goodness. Yeah, I mean, it was probably one of the things like these bylaws. There were probably there was a few token, yeah. you know, horse horse and carriage ones around. Um, but like yeah, ninety four yeah, was the last. Yeah, was the last. I guess so. It was the last license issued for that. Um, and then we start to see cabs that start to resemble really a little bit of the cabs we see today mm. on the street. So the FX three um, was released in nineteen fifty three, and that's where really we start to. No, the, the term comes from the black cab the the electric cab i mentioned for instance back in the day in the end of the 19th century a lot of that was yellow okay oh, really? um but yeah well uh, you know post-war britain mm. paint and lots of things you know ration all sorts of stuff were still in black was the cheapest paint all yeah. the cabs generally were painted black and that's where that common name apparently oh, right. comes from the cabs that were post-world war ii because they were all black Still mainly owned by fleet owners then. So the fleet owners, mm-hmm. you know, they know that 
the the set price of a cab per week is is X. Yeah. You know, whether it's red, white, you're not going to pay extra to have it a different color. And actually, what I learned with my first cab that was charcoal gray, if you get a different color cab uh, to to black, then if you get a big scrape along your door or something like that, you've got to get the whole side sprayed and faded in the same color whereas obviously if you've got the normal factory edition black you could potentially just get a new door and get it put on for example so it's a lot easier if you've got a black cab but yeah so that's that's where we think the commonly referred to name as black cab actually comes from um i mean cab drivers will know the name of these we've got the fx4 that came out which is obviously a modified version of the fx3 then we go to the the fairway which I recognise and, and you would remember as well a little bit, Alex. They they don't I don't you don't see any of them now except if they're in some sort of Lord Mayor show or something like that. Right. Uh, but known as a bone bone shaker for their dodgy suspension <laughs> on the back. Um, Not what you're looking for, is it really? <laughs> no, but it's very much what what today's cabs are, are really based on now. Then you had yeah. the TX one, two, three, and four, and then you've got the TXE now. So. Yeah, the state-of-the-art electric cab with which, fully wheelchair accessible. Which I have to say um, are amazing because they've got this brilliant... Well, first, you've got one extra seat. So you've got six seats and they're wheelchair accessible. Yes. And you've got a fully panoramic roof, which is amazing. I love it. Yeah, no, they, they are, they're lovely to drive. They are, um, as I say, you charge them up. They're fully electric capable. Um, they have got a little small unleaded generator because as a cab driver, you you don't know where you're going to go. Yeah. You could get a job someone wants to go down to Southampton. Um, and they need to get there quick. They they haven't got time to look for other cabs and that sort of stuff. So, um, but generally, you know, people are charging them up. The infrastructure's catching up. We're getting more and more charging points. So, so yeah, they're they're a lovely, lovely uh, vehicle to drive. And uh, yeah, the public love them. Everyone comments when they get in. So um, yeah, it's nice. And obviously, you're uh, you're cruising around in your bus lanes and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. a lot of privileges for the people that that get in cabs. They'll know. But yeah, if you're visiting, you're gonna get around. Um, gonna get around quickly. And actually. There's a lot of blue badges jump into cabs, mm. actually, Alex, as I'm sure you do quite often on your tours. The classic routes that that I that I get <laughs> is St Paul's to the Tower of London, yep, <laughs> or Tower of London in the afternoon down the embankment to Westminster, yep, absolutely, or yeah, Trafalgar Square up to St Paul's or King's Cross or something, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, um, so what else have we got going on? So in the nineties, um. We've started the uh, the taxi drivers. Some people may know that domestically live around London. Uh, the magical taxi tour launch taking um, yeah, over 200 children thing. with life-threatening illnesses to Disneyland Paris, which is lovely. Yeah, and that happens every year. Every single year. All the cab drivers give up their own time um, and they, they take, yeah, the children with life-threatening illnesses and their carers or parents, mm. they take them all the way to Disneyland Paris. That's amazing. Um, it's funded by all sorts of businesses and individuals, a lot of them friends of the trade. Um, so whether they're insurance companies, other livery companies, things like that. Um, and yeah, take them all the way down there because, you know, sometimes obviously if you're transporting medical equipment and, and wheelchairs, all that sort of stuff, very, very difficult to go abroad. But there's a collaboration between English and French police. All the French police come over and there's a rolling oh, escort. Really? It doesn't stop all the way to Paris. Yeah, That's it's really so cool. Wonderful. And how many cabs do they do it each year? Uh, it's, it's hundreds. Wow. Okay, so it's obviously different every different every year because the cabs are sponsored by businesses, so they, yeah. they get their logo on the side and they proudly sponsor, you know, some of them sponsor multiple cabs. But um, So it depends how many sponsors they attract. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's hundreds of That's tabs. So great. So um, yeah, it's a really big deal. It does a lot of great work, things like that. Um, I mentioned the uh, livery company, the worshipful company of Hackney Carriage Others, 104th mm. livery company in the city of London, which you all know loads about. And people would see the lovely ornate halls as they're moving around. Um, and yeah, that really brings us up to modern day. Yeah. Um, we we survived. Yeah, survived all sorts of stuff. Survived COVID wars, all sorts of stuff. Mm. So we're still here. Yeah, taking all our beloved people of London and from overseas all around the city. So yeah, we'll hopefully yeah, be here doing our trade for, for many, many years to come. Absolutely. And you, you can, so I, you can actually buy the black cabs, can't you? Even without a license, obviously you need a license to take passengers, but there are a few famous faces that have had or still have <laughs> black cabs, right? There are indeed actually. Yeah. So you can buy cabs and actually, um, you know, the trained eye like us cab drivers, you will see cabs sometimes, um without the official license mm. on the back which means the inspection to do with the 25 foot turning circle and all sorts of other you know tests on your meter and your credit card machine and whatever else and the mechanical stuff on your cab you'll see it hasn't got that on yeah um and that's where it's been bought for private use so actually there's a there's a, there's a couple of companies that are doing it a chap called i think it's clive sutton and another fellow called khan they modify cars and we're talking the higher end mm. you know bentley's and G wagons and Mercedes stuff and all sorts of things. They uh, have, you know, really pimped out some of the cabs. You get inside, it's all <laughs> dripping with leather and mood lighting <laughs> everywhere and all sorts of stuff. So you see some of them knocking around, but you see high end estate agents that using them for uh, for business stuff. But yes, celebrities they have been known to have them as well. Mm. So uh, famous faces, Stephen Fry. Yeah, he's had a cab before. I mean, I haven't seen him in the electric ones because they're quite lumpy to buy now. So. Right. Um, that might have cooled the market a little bit for the uh, for the, the sort of buying it when it's not a cab. But yeah, Kate Moss famously had one. Oh, really? Noel Edmonds, he used to love having one. He used to put a mannequin in the back and he's quoted as saying this in an interview. <laughs> he used to use the bus lanes in Bristol when he was filming Deal or No Deal and he put the mannequin in to stop people just getting in at the lights. <laughs> it was a fixture always in the back of the cab. Um <laughs> A garage that I use, they reckon they do or did Gary Barlow's cab, which I've never seen oh. Gary photographed in one. But uh, but yeah, it's um, yeah, the, you do get people buying them, which is good. And you can you know you can see why. One of the most, actually one of the most famous uh, people, royalty, Prince Philip. Mm. He loved his cab, and it, he actually got it converted to um, LPG, so it's super um, environmentally friendly oh, really? and stuff like that. And you'll love this, Alex. It was in Balmoral Green. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Had to be done, didn't it? He couldn't resist. So, yeah, he used to love his cab, which is great. And he'd drive um, the green around, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would, I'm sure, around places like Balmoral. Um, I mean, the pictures I've seen in London, which he used to drag his security team in to drive it. They must have hated driving it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he used to bring it into London. A great picture of the Queen in the back with him leaving Billy Elliot at one point Amazing. down in Victoria. And a stressed security guard in the front with a walkie-talkie to his mouth. <laughs> not enjoying it. But I think um, he used to drive it himself as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he used to... He, he. I haven't seen any pictures of him, but he, he said he loved using the bus lanes. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, yeah, total <laughs> legend. Um, I'll get... I'll Actually, I'll circle back, excuse the pun, on uh, the hippocampus. Oh, yeah. So the reason I say about the cab driver's brains, study was done at UCL and that took 79 cab drivers... Um, and they did an MRI scan on their brains and they took the 20 um, or so that passed. I think it was, I think it was 20 that passed. Maybe it was a bit more. Maybe it was 40 actually. Um, 
But um, they took all the people that, that passed, they rescanned their brains, and, and thankfully, a lot of the people that gave it up and didn't make it, they agreed to take part in the study still. And the hippocampus, which is the part um, that we use, all of us for memory, actually increases in mass and size on those scans. So you actually do have a bigger brain than most mortals. <laughs> we actually do, yeah. We can we can boast that for sure. And actually, um, you might remember the uh, or heard about the uh, chap Fred Housko, cab driver that won Mastermind. Oh yeah, back yeah. in the day. So um, yeah, he was a cab driver, and that was obviously a huge story at the time. Um, Mastermind, not that I'd followed it, you know, for many years, but I'm sure it was it was won by barristers and professors and all sorts of stuff all the time. So. You know, what's perceived as a working class cabbie coming along and winning. It was big news Amazing. back in the day. Um, but and, and were you familiar with him, Alex? Yeah, I don't, chap that... yeah I don't know when it, I think it was slightly before my time, but I have definitely heard of it. I've not seen him win it, but I've definitely heard of him. And yeah. Yeah. Saying. And one thing actually that I learned, and, and this is actually going to tie tour guiding in with cabs very nicely, actually, because I had a look at, exactly his credentials and what he's and just wondering what he's up to mm. now and did you know that he was a registered london tourist board guide interesting and that's a question for you i was wondering the blue badge was it ever entwined with whatever a london tourist board badge was or was that something independent or have you never really I've heard, never of, heard of a london tourist board badge before um so it could be that it, it was a Blue so the London Tourist Board, apparently, I did a bit more research into what that was. It, uh, apparently that got scrapped and was replaced by Visit London. Uh, um, but I was wondering about the yeah, actual name, Blue Badge, yeah, where that goes, how long that goes back. Well, that, that actually could have goes back. previously been an LTV. That goes back to 1961, um, Festival of Britain. Okay. Sorry, 51, 1951, um, Festival of Britain. So, yeah, I mean, it could. the, the trick is with, unless you know what a, Blue Badge Tourist Guide is, everyone gets the name wrong. So there's a chance that... Yeah, so that it might have been reported wrong, to be honest. Yeah. The London Tourist Board badge might not have actually been anything. Um, it might have been, you know, a, a journalist from overseas or something just labelling that or yeah. putting two and two together. But his credentials, he was some sort of... Something to do with tourism. And, and he actually mentions it in his... Uh, in, you know, his in how he managed to win. And he actually... You know, gave a big nod to that as well. So uh, okay, I'll have a yeah. I've ne never heard of the London Tourist Board before, so I thought I'm gonna got a question for Alex now. Yeah, actually. no, that's <laughs> there's yeah. The only official one that I'm aware of is the blue badge slash green badge. So he could have been a an area specific one. Um, but I will, I'll have a little rummage. I'll see if we can answer that question. Maybe on the next. Who board. knows? Yeah, apparently he's still knocking around. In 2007, he was still working as a cab driver. Really good. And he, he he's still with us apparently. So um, yeah, uh, Fred, if you're listening, big shout out to you, mate. <laughs> Amazing. And yeah, actually, we 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 need to give Fred. What's the um, what's the traditional sort of cabby greeting? Or when you is it when you leave the cab, they always say. What's the what's the phrase? Gar oh, be lucky. Be lucky. That's it. I always remember Gary saying that. Yeah, to me. Be, lucky. be lucky. You've always got to be lucky. There's, there's loads of sayings actually. Uh, or the flagful. Um, not that we don't really talk about a flagful, but that's where it comes from. Yeah. Um, yeah, turning on a sixpence. Um, what other names are there that are that we say? A musher mm. is someone that owns their cab. Right. Where that comes from, I don't know. That's the sort of thing. You know when you have sayings that you, yeah, you don't really know no where it idea, came yeah. from? There's just there's no literacy that supports anything to do it. But a musher is someone that certainly owns a cab. And again, actually a bilker, 
that's probably an acronym for something bilk. Mm. A bilker is someone that runs off about paying. Ah. Um, well, sherbet. A oh, bit of Cockney rhyme saying sherbet dib dab. I mean, we all know that. Uh, uh, well, let us Londoners do, Alex. Oh, now you're putting me on on the spot. Sherbet dib dab. I feel like I do. It's not, it's not like money. If you jump it, in, it? if you if you're going to jump in a sherbet. Oh, it's a cat. You're getting in a cab. <laughs> yeah, sure, but div-dab. How so did I miss You're that? overthinking it, I think. <laughs> I was really overthinking <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and before we finish, we've done a, oh gosh, a really long podcast today. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, I failed to find a definitive answer on this. The, we always hear about, you know, these kind of old arcane laws that stick around. And one of them is that cab drivers need to have a bale of hay in the boot for the horse now i'm assuming now <laughs> that, that doesn't actually stick but that is what used to happen yeah so you, that's you would probably um it's a bit of an urban myth now that that exists it did exist um i think it was up until 1976 is the year i've got in my okay. head i think there was probably dropped a few things then um and it was it was true back in the day there was um certainly a regulation that meant that the driver um, had to ha- basically have enough food and, and hay for his horse to eat off, and he had to have that himself. So that certainly was um, was a regulation. I think, yeah, it was dumped back in a sort of a, a repeal of some of the laws mm. back in 76. At the same time, have you ever heard about the law that cab drivers are allowed to urinate on the back wheel of the cab? No, I've not. And it's not a criminal offence. I've not. Heard that, <laughs> I'm no. really lowering the tone of this <laughs> this podcast now. You can edit this this bit out if you want, Alex. <laughs> no, but no, yeah, no. Saying, saying I believe. Um, you know, oh, I suppose I have. Oh, yeah, I would hear about it because I'm a cab driver. But yeah, if you've got your hand on your cab mm. and you're you're taking a, a whiz at night or wherever, you know, obviously if you're doing it in Piccadilly Circus, that's going to cause a problem. But yes. um, you know, cab drivers are out back in the day. Probably goes back to the carriage days. I'm sure. Uh, well, there wasn't just a you know a Mackie D's you can pop into or a hotel. Um, yeah, if you had your your hand on your carriage and you're urinating on the back um, near side wheel, then uh, it wasn't a criminal offence. Really, you're allowed to do and it. That's still the case but now. That went no, it went in '76. Oh, so, yeah, no in excuse now. There's bathrooms and hotels everywhere. That's so very uh, true. yeah, that's one of the laws. But yeah, it was the Bailey hate was an actual law many many years ago. Yeah. So. Yeah, truth in that, for sure. Amazing. Oh, well, listen, Ollie, this has been absolutely fascinating. And we've gone on so long, I can't believe how much of your time I've taken off. I'm so sorry. Um, but thank you so much. What an absolute treat to have you along. And, um, I mean, yeah, I've learned, I've actually learned a huge amount today. There's stuff there that I didn't know at all. Um, and I love that we've got a, a tame cab driver. And, gang, if any of you want to do a tour with Ollie, you can do a tour with Ollie. Um, he runs his own company called Discover Real London, and you're doing. Are you doing Christmas lights tours again this year? We're doing lights tours. Amazing. We're doing all sorts of fun tours. So yeah, yeah. check us out if you uh, like the sound of the cabs and uh, and you're still tuned in now. Then you must be a big fan <laughs> of what I've got to say. Uh, an hour and six minutes on. Um, then yeah, you know where to. Uh, yeah, you know where to find me. Absolutely. And my gang. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ollie. And we'll see you again. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Take care. Yeah, I will look forward to it. Thanks so much, Alex. Bye. Bye.